55. F. Hair, the fashion of which not pleasing the fancy of the city Radamanthus, he remitted the fine on condition that the delinquent should instantly cut off the offending hairs, a barber being sent for. The operation was instantly performed, and Sir Peter, with a spirit of generosity only to be equaled by his cutting humor, actually put his hand in his breeches pocket and handed over to the official figure his fee of one shilling. The shorn tailor left the office protesting that Sir Peter had not treated him handsomely, as he had only consented to sacrifice his flowing locks, but that the alderman had cabbaged his whiskers as well. A celestial con, why is wit like a Chinese lady's foot? Because brevity is the soul of it. The Prince of Wales, his future times. A private letter from Hanover states that, precisely at twelve minutes to eleven in the morning on the ninth of the present November, his Majesty King Ernest was suddenly attacked by a violent fit of blue devils. All the court doctors were immediately summoned, and as immediately dismissed, by His Majesty, who sent for the Wizard of the North recently appointed Royal Astrologer, to divine the mysterious cause of this so sudden melancholy. In a trice the mystery was solved Queen Victoria was happily delivered of a prince. His Majesty was immediately assisted to his chamber put to bed the curtains drawn all the royal household ordered to wear list slippers the one knocker to the palace was carefully tied up and on the departure of our courier half a load of straw was already deposited beneath the window of the royal chamber. The sentinels on duty were prohibited from even sneezing, under pain of death, and all things in and about the palace, to use a brand new simile were silent as the grave. Whilst there was only the Princess Royal there were many hopes. There was hope from severe teething hope from measles hope from whooping cough but with the addition of a Prince of Wales. The hopes of Hanover are below par. But we pause. We will no further invade the sanctity of the sorrows of a king, merely observing, that what makes His Majesty very savage, makes hundreds of thousands of Englishmen mighty glad. There are now two cradles between the crown of England and the white horse of Hanover. We had a Prince of Wales, whilst, however, England is throwing up its million caps in rapture at the advent. Let it not be forgotten to whom we owe the royal baby. In the clamorousness of our joy the fact would have escaped us, had we not received a letter from Colonel S.I.B.D.H.O.R.P., who assures us that we owe a Prince of Wales entirely to the present cabinet, had the Whigs remained in office. The infant would inevitably have been a girl for our own part but we confess we are sometimes apt to look too soberly at things we think Her Majesty may all good angels make her coddle. Island inadvertently no doubt, treated in a questionable spirit of compliment by these uproarious rejoicings at the sex of the illustrious little boy, who has cast, if possible, a new dignity upon Lord Mayor's Day, and made the very giants of Guildhall shoot up an inch taller at the compliment he has paid them of visiting the world on the 9th of November. In our playful enthusiasm, we had that island the public we declared we must have a prince of Wales we should be dreadfully in the dumps if the child were not a prince the queen must have a prince a bouncing prince and nothing but a prince. Now might not an ill-natured philosopher but all philosophers are ill-natured interpret these yearnings for masculine royalty as something like pensive regrets that the throne should ever be filled by the feminine sex. For our own part we are perfectly satisfied that the Queen may she live to see the Prince of Wales wrinkled and white-headed, is a Queen, and think Victoria the first sounds quite as musically has in it as full a note of promise as if the regal name had run George V. We think there is a positive want of gallantry at this unequivocally shouted preference of a Prince of Wales. Nevertheless, we are happy to say, the pretty, good-tempered Princess Royal she is not blind, as the Tories once averred, 
but then the Whigs were in still laughs and chirps as if nothing had happened, nay, as a proof of the happy nature of the infant we beg to say that the fact is copyright, as we purchased it of the reporter of the observer, whilst, on the ninth instant, the chimes of street martins were sounding merrily for the birth of the prince, the princess magnanimously shook her coral bells in welcome of her dispossessing brother, independently of the sensation made in the city by the new glory that has fallen upon the ninth of november it is said that sir peter lorry has been so wrapped by the auspicious coincidence that he has done nothing since but talk and think of the prince of wales that on wednesday last he rebuked an infant beggar with i've nothing for you prince of wales independently of the luster flung upon the new lord mayor and the lord mayor just out who will it is said both be cup baronets the occasion has given birth to much deep philosophy on the part of our contemporaries so deep, that there is no getting to the end of it, and has also revived much black-letter learning connected with the birth of every Prince of Wales, from the first to the last and, therefore, certainly not least newcomer, an hour or so after George the Fourth was born, we are told that the wagons containing the treasure of the Hermione, a Spanish galleon, captured off St. Vincent by three English frigates, entered Street James's Street, escorted by cavalry and infantry, with trumpets sounding, the enemy's flags waving over the wagons, and the whole surrounded by an immense multitude of spectators. Now here, to the vulgar mind, was a happy augury of the future golden reign of the royal baby. He comes upon the earth amid a shower of gold, the melodious chink of doubloons and pieces of eight echo his first infant wailings. What a theme for the gypsies of the press the fortune tellers of the time. At the present hour that baby sleeps the last sleep in Street George's Chapel, and we have his public and his social history before us. What does experience the experience bought and paid for by hard, hard cash now read in the wagons of treasure, groaning musically to the rocking cradle of the callow infant? Simply, the babe of Queen Charlotte would be a very expensive babe indeed, and that the wealth of a Spanish galleon was all insufficient for the youngling's future wants. We have been favored, among a series of pictures, with the following of George the Fourth, exhibited in his babyhood, we are told that all persons of fashion were admitted to see the prince, under the following restrictions, viz, that in passing through the apartment they stepped with the greatest caution, and did not offer to touch his royal highness, for the greater security in this respect, a part of the apartment was latticed off in the Chinese manner, to prevent curious persons from approaching too nearly. That lattice, in the Chinese manner, was a small yet fatal foreshadowing of the Chinese pavilion at Brighton of that temple, worthy of Pekin, wherein the royal infant of threescore was wont to enshrine himself, not from the desecrating touch of the world, but even from the eyes of a curious people, who, having paid some millions toward manufacturing the most finished gentlemen in Europe, had now and then a wish and regarded wish to look at their expensive handiwork. What different prognostics have we in the natal day of our present Prince of Wales? What rational hopes from many circumstances that beset him? The royal infant, we are told, is suckled by a person named Brof, formerly a housemaid at Esher. From this very fact, will not the royal child grow up with the consciousness that he owes his nourishment even to the very humblest of the people? Will he not suck in the humanizing truth with his very milk? And then for the Spanish treasure, hard food for Midas, that threw its jaundiced glory about the cradle of George the Fourth. what is that to the promise of plenty, augured by the natal day of our present prince, comes he not on the 9th of November, is not his advent glorified by the aromatic clouds of the Lord Mayor's kitchen, let every man, woman, and child possess themselves of a Times newspaper of the 10th alt. 
for there, in genial companionship with the chronicle of the birth of the prince, is the luscious history of the Lord Mayor's dinner. We quit Buckingham Palace, our mind full of our dear little queen, the royal baby, Prince Albert who, as the standard informs us subsequently, bows, bareheaded, to the populace, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Dr. Lowcock, the Duke of Wellington, and the monthly nurse, and immediately fall upon the civic general bill affair, the real turd at the city board. Oh, men of Paisley good folks of Bolton what promise for ye is here, turkeys, capons, sirloins, asparagus, pheasants, pineapples, savoy cakes, chantilly baskets, mince pies, preserved ginger, brandy cherries, a thousand luscious cakes that the sense aches at. What are all these gifts of plenty? But a glad promise that in the time of the sweetest young prince, that on the birthday of that prince just vouchsafe to us, all England will be a large Lord Mayor's table. Will it be possible for Englishmen to disassociate in their minds the Prince of Wales and the Prince of Goodfellows? And whereas the reigns of other potentates are signalized by bloodshed and war, the time of the prince will be glorified by cooking and good cheer. His drumsticks will be the drumsticks of turkeys his cannon, the popping of corks, in his day. Even weavers shall know the taste of geese, and factory children smack their lips at the gravy of the great sirloin. Join your glasses, brandish your carving knives, cry welcome to the Prince of Wales, for he comes garnished with all the world's good things. He shall live in the hearts, and what is more in the stomachs of his people. Cue proper precaution. Everybody is talking of the great impropriety that has been practiced in keeping gunpowder within the tower, and the papers are blowing up the authorities with astounding violence for their alleged laxity. Gunpowder, say the angry journalists, ought only to be kept where there is no possibility of a spark getting to it. We suggest the bottom of the Thames, as the only place where, in future, this precious preparation can be securely deposited. Illustration, Olivia's return to her friends. I entreat, woman that my words may be now marked. Once for all, I have here brought you back a poor deluded wanderer, her return to duty demands the revival of our tenderness. The kindness of heaven is promised to the penitent, and let ours be directed by the example. Vicar of Wakefield, Chap, XXII, The Physiology of the London Medical Student, 8, Of the Examination at Apothecary's Hall. The last task that devolves upon our student before he goes up to the hall is to hunt up his testimonials of attendance to lectures and good moral conduct in his apprenticeship, together with his parochial certificate of age and baptism. The first of these is the chief point to obtain, the two last he generally writes himself, in the style best consonant with his own feelings and the date of his indenture. His morality ticket is as follows, copy, I hereby certify that during the period Mr. Joseph Muff served his time with me he especially recommended himself to my notice by his studious and attentive habits, highly moral and gentlemanly conduct, and excellent disposition. He always availed himself of every opportunity to improve his professional knowledge, signed according to the name on the indenture. The certificate of attendance upon lectures is only obtained in its most approved state by much clever maneuvering. It is important to bear in mind that a lecturer should never be asked whilst he is loitering about the school for his signature of the student's diligence. He may then have time to recollect his ignorance of his pupil's face at his discourses. He should always be caught flying either immediately before or after his lecture in order that the whole business may be too hurried to admit of investigation. In the space left for the degree of attention which the student has shown, it is better that he subscribes nothing at all than an indifferent report, because... In the former case, 
the student can fill it up to his own satisfaction. He usually prefers the phrase, with unremitting diligence. And having arrived at this important section of our physiology, it behoves us to publish, for the benefit of medical students in general, and those about to go up in particular, the following code of instructions to be observed by those preparing for examination at the hall. 1. Previously to going up, take some pills and get your hair cut. This not only clears your faculties, but improves your appearance. The court of examiners dislike long hair. 2. Do not drink too much stout before you go in with the idea that it will give you pluck. It renders you very valiant for half an hour and then muddles your notions with indescribable confusion. 3. Having arrived at the hall, put your rings and chains in your pocket, and, if practicable, publish a pair of spectacles. This will endow you with a grave look. 4. On taking your place at the table, if you wish to gain time, feign to be intensely frightened. One of the examiners will then rise to give you a tumbler of water, which you may, with good effect, rattle tremulously against your teeth when drinking. This may possibly lead them to excuse bad answers on the score of extreme nervous trepidation. 5. Should things appear to be going against you, get up a hectic cough, which is easily imitated, and look acutely miserable, which you will probably do without trying. 6. Endeavor to assume an offhand manner of answering, and when you have stated any pathological fact right or wrong stick to it, if they want a case for example, invent one, that happened when you were an apprentice in the country, this assumed confidence will sometimes bother them, we knew a student who once swore at the hall, that he gave opium in a case of concussion of the brain, and that the patient never required anything else, it was true he never did, 7, should you be fortunate enough to pass, go to your hospital next day and report your examination, describing it as the most extraordinary ordeal of deep-searching questions ever undergone. This will make the professors think well of you, and the new men deem you little less than a mental colossus. Say, also, you were complimented by the court. This advice island however, scarcely necessary, as we never know a student pass who was not thus honored according to his own account, all things being arranged to his satisfaction. He deposits his papers under the care of Mr. Sayer and passes the interval before the fatal day much in the same state of mind as a condemned criminal. That last Thursday arrives, and at a quarter to four, any person who takes the trouble to station himself at the corner of Union Street will see various groups of three and four young men wending their way towards the portals of Apothecary's Hall, consisting of students about to be examined, accompanied by friends who come down with them to keep up their spirits. They approach the door, and shake hands as they give and receive wishes of success. The wicket closes on the candidates, and their friends adjourn to the retail establishment opposite, to go beyond man and pledge their anxious companions in dissectors diet drink vulgo, half and half, leaving them to their libations. We follow our old friend Mr. Joseph Muff. He crosses the paved courtyard with the air of a man who had lost half a crown and found a halfpenny, and through the window sees the assistants dispensing plums, pepper, and prescriptions, with provoking indifference. Turning to the left, he ascends a solemn-looking staircase, adorned with severe black figures in niches, who support lamps. On the top of the staircase he enters a room, wherein the partners of his misery are collected. It is a long narrow apartment, commonly known as, the Finking Room, ornament with a savage-looking fireplace at one end, and a huge surly chest at the other, with gloomy presses against the walls, containing dry moldy books in harsh, repulsive bindings. The windows look into the court, and the glass is scored by diamond rings, 
and the shutters penciled with names and sentences, which Mr. Muff regards with feelings similar to those he would experience in contemplating the inscriptions on the walls of a condemned cell. The very chairs in the room look overbearing and unpleasant, and the whole locality is invested with an overallishness of unanswerable questions and intricate botheration. Some of the students are marching up and down the room in feverish restlessness, others, arm in arm, are worrying each other to death with questions, and the rest are grinding away to the last minute at a manual, or trying to write minute atomic numbers on their thumbnail. The clock strikes five, and Mr. Sayer enters the room, exclaiming, Mr. Manhook, Mr. Jones, Mr. Saxby, and Mr. Collins, before depart to the chamber of examination, where the medical inquisition awaits them with every species of mental torture to screw their brains instead of their thumbs, and rack their intellects instead of their limbs, the chair on which the unfortunate student is placed being far more uneasy than the tightest fitting, scavenger's daughter, in the Tower of London. After an anxious hour, Mr. Jones returns, with a light bounding step to a joyous extempore air of his own composing, he has passed In another twenty minutes Mr. Saxby walks fiercely and calls for his hat, condemns the examiners ad inferos, swears he shall cut the profession, and marches away. He has been plucked, and Mr. Muff, who stands sixth on the list, is called on to make his appearance before the awful tribunal, regularly called in and bowled out. Dr. Demosthenes and C. and C. and C. and C. Bedford, who has lately broken out in a new place, has been accused by the lieges of the borough of having acted in a most unprofessional manner, in short, with having lost his patience. He Dr. Demosthenes N.C. begs to state, the only surgical operation he ever attempted was most successful, notwithstanding it was the difficult one of amputating his mahogany, and he further adds, the only case he ever had is still in his hand, it being a most obstinate the Prince of Wales, by the observer's own correspondent, knowing the anxiety that will be felt on this subject, though we doubt if the future can can be called a subject at all. We have collected the following exclusive particulars, the prince's title. His Royal Highness will for the present go by the title of Poppet, affectionately conferred upon him by Mrs. Lilly at the moment of his birth. Poppet is a title of very great antiquity, and has from time immemorial been used as a mark of endearment towards a newly born child in all genteel families. Lovey-dovey has been spoken of, but it is not likely that His Royal Highness will assume the style and dignity of Lovey-dovey for a considerable period. The prince's income. Considerable mistakes have been fallen into by some of our contemporaries on this important subject. What may be the present wishes of His Royal Highness it is impossible for anyone to ascertain. For he is able to articulate nothing on this point with his little pipe, but the piper, we know, must be eventually paid. He becomes immediately entitled to all the loose halfpence in his mother's reticule, and sixpence a week will be at once payable out of his father's estates at Saxe-Gotha. The whole of the revenues attached to the Duchy of Cornwall are also his by the mere fact of his birth, but there is a difficulty as to his giving a receipt for the money, if it should be paid to him. It is believed, that on the meeting of Parliament a bill will pass for granting peg-top money to His Royal Highness, and a lollipop allowance will be among the earliest estimates. The Prince's military rank, the Prince of Wales is by birth at the head of all the infantry in the kingdom, and is colonel in his own right of a regiment of tin soldiers. The prince's wardrobe, the prince falls at once into all the long frocks that are required, and has an estate tail in six dozen napkins. The prince's education, this important matter will be confined at present to teaching his royal highness how to take his pet without spilling it. 
a professor from the Papal States will, it is expected, be entrusted with this branch of the royal economy, the prince's wet nurse. Our contemporaries are wrong in stating that the individual to whom the post of wet nurse has been assigned is nothing but a housemaid. We have full authority to state that she is no maid at all, but a respectable married woman, the prince's honors. His Royal Highness has not yet been created a Knight of the Garter, though Sir James Clark insisted on his being admitted to the bath, against which ceremony the infant prince entered a vociferous protest. The whole of the above particulars may be relied on as having been furnished from the very highest authority. A-B-A-R-R-O-W-K-N-I-G-H-D. Sir W-I-L-L-O-U-G-H-B-A-C-O-N. During his visit to the Mansion House Feast, in a moment of forgetfulness after the song of Hurrah for the Road, being asked to take wine with the new Lord Mayor, declined the honor in the genuine long-stage phraseology, declaring he had already whacked his fare, and was quite magisterial axioms. The IDA police reports, an Irishman will swear anything. Mr. Grove, a man who wears long hair is capable of anything. Sir Peter Laurie, the Royal Bulletins, the documents lately shown at Buckingham Palace are spurious, and the real ones have been suppressed from party motives, which we shall not allude to. The following are genuine, they relate only to the Prince, the convalescence of Her Majesty being, we are glad to say, so rapid as to require no official notice. Half past twelve, the Prince has sneezed, and it is believed has smiled, though the nurses are unable to pronounce whether the expression of pleasure arose from satisfaction or colic. Quarter past one, the Prince has passed a comfortable minute, and is much easier. Two o'clock, the Prince is fast asleep, and is more quiet. Half past two, the prince has been shown to Sir Robert Peel, and was very fretful. Three o'clock, Sir Robert Peel has left the palace, and the prince is again perfectly composed, to build drumsticks. Our own Sir Peter Laurie, upon witnessing the extraordinary performance of Little Wheeland in Die Hexen am Rhine, at the Adelphi Theatre, was so transported with his diabolic agility, that he determined upon endeavoring to arrive at the same perfection of pliability. As a guide for his undertaking, he instantly dispatched old Hobler for a folio edition of Brandy and Waterford. Ago, the Marquis of Waterford, upon his recent visit to Devonshire, was much struck with the peculiar notice upon the county stretchers, being overtaken by some of their extra bottled apple juice. He tested the truth of the statement, and found them literally licensed to carry one in sitter, one in cider, the wheels of fortune, Sir Windham A. and S.D.R.U.D.H.R whose young rapid connection with the stage is pretty generally known, boasts that his stud was unrivaled for speed, as he managed with his four to run through his whole estates in six months, which he thinks a pretty decent proof that his might well be considered seeing nothing Commissioner Harvey and his old crony, Joe Hume, were talking lately of the wonders which the latter had seen in his travels. You have been on Mont Blanc, said Will. Certainly, replied the other. And what did you see there? Why really? said Joe. It is always so wrapped up in a double-milled fog, that there is nothing to be seen from it. Nothing, echoed he of the blues. I never knew till now why it was called Mount Blanc, as this was the commissioner's first attempt at a witticism. We forgive him. More fashionable intelligence. From our own one, a marriage is on the toppies between Mr. John Smith, the distinguished toll collector at the Marsh Gate, and Miss Julia Belinda Smooks the lovely and accomplished daughter of the gallant out-pensioner of Greenwich Hospital, should the wedding take place. The bridegroom will be given away by Mr. Levy, the great toll contractor, while the blushing bride will be attended to the altar by her mother-in-law. 
the well-known laundress of Tash Street, the Trousseau, consisting of a selection from a bankrupt stock of damaged Delanes, has been purchased at Lambeth House, and a parasol carefully chosen from a lot of 500, all at one and ninepence, will be presented by the happy bridegroom on the morning of the marriage. A cabman has already been spoken to, and a shilling fare has been sketched out for the eventful morning, which is so arranged as to terminate at the toll house, from which Mr. Smith can only be absent for about an hour, during which time the toll will be taken by an amateur of celebrity. Among the fashionable sat the Bower Saloon, we observe Masros, Jones and Brown, Mr. J. Jones, Mr. H. Jones, Mr. M. Brown, Mr. K. Brown and several other distinguished leaders of the town in Stangate. There is no truth in the report that Tom Timkins intends resigning his seat at the apple stall in the new cut, and the rumors of a successor are therefore premature and indelicate. The vacant crossing opposite the Victoria has not been offered to Bill Swivel, nor is it intended that anyone shall be appointed to the post in the circus. Cons. Worth conning. Why is the making a mem. of the number of a person's residence like a general election? because it's done to a remember the house. Why is Count Dorsetti a capital piece of furniture for a kitchen? Because he's a good dresser. Morbid sympathy for criminals. Our contemporary, the Times, for the last few days has been very justly deprecating the existing morbid sympathy for criminals. The moment that a man sins against the conventionalities of society he ought certainly to be excluded from all claims upon the sympathy of his fellows. It is very true that even the felon has kindred, parents, wife, children for whom, and in whom, God has implanted an instinctive love. It is true that the criminal may have been led by the example of aristocratic sinners to disregard the injunctions of revealed religion against the adulterer, the gamester, and the drunkard, and having imitated the pleasant follies of the great without possessing the requisite means for such enjoyments, the man of pleasure has degenerated into the man of crime. It is true that the poor and ignorant may have claims upon the wealth and the intelligence of the rich and learned, but are we to pause to inquire whether want may have driven the destitute to theft, or the absence of early instruction have left the physical desires of the offender's nature superior to its moral restrictions? Certainly not. Whilst we have a gallows, their island however, one difficulty which seems to interfere with a liberal exercise of the rope and the beam, where are we to find executioners? For if, whoso sheddeth man's blood, be amenable to man, surely Jack Ketch is not to be exempted. The Times condemns the late Lord Chamberlain for allowing the representation of Jack Shepard and Madame Lafarge at the Adelphi, so do we. The Times intimates that the newspapers team with details about everything which such criminals as Dick Turpin and Jack Shepard say or do, that complete biographies of them are presented to the public that report after report expatiates upon every refinement and peculiarity in their wickedness, for the good purpose of warning the embryo highwaymen. We are something more than debarrers of this. We can see no difference between the exhibition of the stage and the gloating of the broadsheet. They are both the agents by which the exploits of the gay highwaymen are realized before his eyes. Amid a brilliant and evidently sympathizing public, we deprecate both as tending to excite the weak-minded to gratify the ambition of this kind of notoriety, and yet we say, with the times, there should be no sympathy for criminals. The male D.A.L.I.L.A.H. Sir Peter Lorry's aversion to a long locks is accounted for by his change of political opinions, he having some time since cut the W.H.I.G.S. A. Punch testimonial. We are virtuously happy to announce that a meeting has been held at the Hummums Hotel. Colonel Sithorpe in the chair. 
for the purpose of presenting to Punch some testimonial of public esteem for his exertions in the detection and exposure of fraudulent wits and would-be distinguished characters. Colonel S.I.B.D.H.O.R.P. thanked the meeting for the honor they had conferred upon him in electing him their chairman upon this occasion. None knew better than himself the service that Punch had rendered to the public, but for that fun-fed individual his call, Sethorpe's own brilliant effusions would have been left to have smoldered in his brain, or have hung like cobwebs about the House of Commons. Here, here, but Punch had stepped into the rescue, he had not only preserved some of the brilliant things that we call, Sethorpe had said, but had also reported many of the extremely original witticisms that he had intended to have uttered. Here, there were many honorable gentlemen he begged pardon gentlemen. He meant, without the honorable, but he had been so long a member of parliament that he had acquired a habit of calling men and things out of their proper names. Apologizing for so lengthy a parenthesis, he would say that there were many gentlemen who were equally indebted here. From Sir Peter Lorry, Peter Borthwick and pre-Adam Robot to this jocular benefactor.